morning, everyone. How's everyone doing today? Good, good, awesome. All right, but anyways, we're continuing our series uh, entitled uh, Journey with Jesus. We're, we're looking through the Gospel of Mark, and today's text will be in Mark 2, uh, uh, starting at verse 13, going all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. We've got a lot of ground to cover, and uh, kind of the theme as we go through the Gospel of Mark, looking at a journey with Jesus, is not just looking at the life of Christ uh, in the Gospel of Mark, but also the journey that he invites us invites us to join him on. And uh, although we have a lot of uh, different texts in our passage, our, our broader passage here this morning, there's one common theme woven through that. And we see a contrast between religion and Jesus. And so there's a, a good friend of ours uh, who doesn't have a Christian background that's been coming to our community group recently. And they said this, uh, this, and this quote, if you will, has been resonating with me for a while. And uh, this person said, you know, religious people used to scare me. And my response was, they shouldn't scare you, they should terrify you. I was like, you should be scared by religious people. Because what we see as we journey through the gospel of Mark is that Jesus actually spoke out against religion and brought in and ushered in a new covenant of grace where we don't have to, through our legalism and our performance, be accepted by God. But Christ came to reconcile us to God so that God would declare upon us through Jesus that we are acceptable and loved, and he is a friend to us. He accepts us. And so that's uh, the contrast there. And the title of my message, as we'll see at the very end, is that Jesus brings life and religion brings death. And that's how our passage kind of wraps up here this morning. And uh, I would say that Jesus Christ, man, uh, he came to give us something far better, church, than good advice. He, he has come to, to give humanity something better than rules. He came uh, to, to give us blood-bought grace, new lives, new hearts, and new destinies. And my, and my hope today, and we're going to pray uh, after this, and my hope today is that we would see, uh, Saju said this a couple weeks ago. He said, you want to know the heart, the disposition that God has towards humanity? You look at Christ. You look at Jesus to see that my hope is that we today would see the heart that, that God has for us, the heart that God has for this sinner, uh, uh, what Christ came to do, and that our hardened hearts would be softened here by that. So let me pray, and we'll, uh, we'll jump into this text. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, uh, for Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you uh, that we get to come together as your people and, and, and rejoice, clap our hands at, at who you are and, and all the promises we have in you, all the hope we have in you. Thank you, God, for that. It's all grace. It's all undeserved. That causes us to, to rejoice, causes us to put our hands in the air. So thank you, God, for that. You're worthy of all honor and all praise, and we come here today to glorify your name. So, Spirit, would you come? Would you, would you magnify? Would you glorify Jesus? Uh, Spirit, would you come now? Would you, would you soften our hardened, calloused, hearts that have grown cold to you uh, and that have grown cold uh, to, to a world that desperately needs you. So Spirit, come do that work now. Uh, use use this, this tired, uh, sore vessel for your purposes. Would you increase and would I be forgotten up here? And we, we, we leave here singing and resting in your grace, uh, seeing that our God doesn't look from a distance with eyes of hatred towards us, but he leans in, comes close, shares a meal, invites us to a table of fellowship, and has eyes of compassion. So may we leave here knowing that. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, guys. Hey, uh, Mark 2, uh, verses 13 uh, is where we're going to start. If you need a Bible, there's Bibles in the center aisle. If you didn't bring one and you're not at the center aisle, feel free to ask someone next to you to, to grab you one. Turn your Bibles on. The verses will be on the screen as well. The way this works is our text today breaks up into kind of three scenes. And in each of these encounters, what we, what we see here is there's a setting, a scene. That's kind of step one. Step two is that there's an accusation from the religious people, the Pharisees, that hurl an accusation at Jesus and his disciples. And then uh, at the end, each of these encounters concludes with Jesus responding to the accusation. And that's kind of the format uh, of these three uh, scenes in our text today. And scene one is, is this, is we see that Jesus Christ came to feast with sinners. Uh, look at verse 13 through 15 with me. It's the calling of Levi, one of, my, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. 
and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and said to him, follow me. And he rose and, and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And so a uh, quick recap here of what's going on again. Mark gives us a, a brief picture, uh, kind of a snapshot, if you will, of what's happening here. And what we know is that what, what's happening here is, is Jesus is continuing uh, uh, his great Galilean ministry for the first year and a half of his ministry. He's around this, this region in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, just out and about teaching, preaching, healing, wherever people were, that's where Jesus went. And Jesus is doing that. And, and we meet a couple people here, if you will, in our first text. One, there's a huge crowd uh, word has gotten out about this guy, Jesus. And wherever he goes, people want to see, hey, what's he going to say? What's going to happen? Who's he going to heal this time? What's he going to do? And, and Jesus can't go anywhere without a large crowd following him. Then uh, what we see is that Jesus and this crowd walk up to, this huge crowd comes, and we have a key detail here, a key detail that we don't understand because we obviously weren't in first century Israel 2,000 years ago. But he says that this guy was, was at a tax booth, and he was a tax collector. And so here's the deal. If we were to rewind 2,000 years ago and you were asked uh, an Israelite, you know, everyone, everyone's about, hey, what's your stance on this issue? You know, that's what everyone's talking about these days. If you were asked to ask uh, someone 2,000 years ago in Israel, hey, what's your stance on tax collectors? You could almost immediately probably, probably see the rage welling up, uh, uh, coursing through their veins, right? And they say, hey, you want to know my stance? You mean, you mean tax collectors? You mean my, my fellow Israelite brother who is robbing me and my family of our hard-earned money? to fill his pockets, and not just that, but, but we have uh, this, this government over us, this evil, wicked government called Rome that's oppressing our people, and not only is he filling his pockets off of my hard-earned money and, and money that should be going to feed my family, he's, he's giving money to Rome or oppressors. You want to know my stance on tax collectors? They're scoundrels. They're thieves. And, and, and they would probably stop there before they were worried about transgressing any any other laws there. And so Jesus approaches this tax booth and the crowd is watching, right? And so the crowd's there and they're probably like, oh, oh Jesus, come on, bro. Let's go, Let's flip that table. Jesus can't bring wrath, right? He's gonna, he's gonna smell like, man, smack him across the face, Jesus, you know, do something. Uh, uh, and the text doesn't say here that Jesus, you know, uh, took out his cell phone, took a picture it was like, man, those wicked tax collectors, hashtag shame on, on Levi. You know, like he didn't, he didn't try to shame him or whatever. No, we don't see that, right? We don't see that. See, a couple texts prior, we learned about this leper. It was an outcast of society. And you have pity, you have compassion for a leper because it was kind of, it uh, wasn't necessarily his fault that he was a leper, right? But this, this tax collector is, is, is a scoundrel. He's a sinner. He, he was hated by society. And listen, rightfully so. And Jesus goes up to this tax booth. And, uh, and anyways, here's some other fun facts about taxes. These are just, I got to share these because these are really good. So there were these, uh, these other Jewish writings uh, after the time of Christ known as the Mishnah and the Talmud. Uh, and, uh, and they set tax collectors beside thieves and murderers. Uh, uh, tax collectors were absolutely banned from the synagogue. Okay. Uh, the, the, uh, this one's good. The touch of a tax collector, like if he's walking past your house and, and touched it, your house now is declared unclean. Uh, so yeah, keep them away from your house. Their testimony was not valid in court. If they saw a crime, they could not even go to court and, and be a witness because, and this is, and this is my favorite one, uh, the uh, Jews could lie to a tax collector with impunity. Isn't that amazing? So all right, guys, hey, uh, you, can, you can say anything you want to them and, and it, it's totally moral. You're, you're totally fine. Uh, that's, that is the, the, the hatred and, and uh, just the, uh, yeah, just the, the, the disposition that the Israelites had towards tax collectors. And so the picture I have is this, is, is Jesus approaches uh, Levi, caught red-handed at the tax booth. There's no, he didn't, you don't see Levi trying to say, oh, hey, hey, Jesus, I was just visiting, you know, I was just hanging out here, I don't, I'm not a tax collector. No, catches him red-handed. And, 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 and what I see here, uh, as I, you know, Mark doesn't give us here, but I think it's okay to, to use our imaginations, is I think Levi knows about Jesus. I think he knows he's a holy man. He, he, he thinks maybe, you know, words getting around that, hey, maybe this is the coming Messiah. And he's in the presence of righteousness. And he knows that he's a wicked man. So the picture I have is Levi is, is sitting there and he's seeing Jesus approach him. And he's like, oh, oh man, oh gosh. Holding his head in shame. Holding his head in shame. And the crowd is gathered around. And I bet you Levi can just feel the glances, man. Hear the whispers, the curses under the breath. 
the, the, the vitriolic hatred coming from the crowd. And everybody is waiting for Jesus to enact swift justice, right? Everyone's just waiting. Come on, Jesus, come on. What are you, how's Jesus going to handle this guy? This guy, the one person we hate in our society, right? And the picture I have is, is Jesus comes and approaches the table and says, some of the effect of, you know, hey, Levi, lift up your head. Lift up your head. Look, look, at, look at me. Do you, do, you see, do, you see, do you see the face that I have? I think Levi, Levi maybe looked up and, and, and he, he saw the face of Christ and he was expecting to see the face that he's seen uh, all the time. A look of, of disappointment. A look of disgust is the, is the look he was expecting Jesus to have. And what we see, maybe Jesus got tears in his eyes. Maybe Levi's got tears in his eyes at this point. We see Christ have a look of compassion on Levi, right? That's the picture I have in my head. He says, hey, Levi, man, come and follow me. Why don't you leave, why don't you leave all this behind? And see, what's interesting here is the way Jesus looked at Levi was completely different from the crowd. See, Jesus looks at people differently than you and I do. See, religion brings condemnation. Jesus ushers in compassion for the sinner. Where you and I have a tendency to look at people like Levi and say, he is, he is rightfully wrong in his sin, and he is, he is deserving of my judgment and my anger towards him. Christ comes and says, he's a, he, yes, he's a sinner, but, but he, he's not, he's not going to remain a sinner. Here's someone who has, uh, Jesus didn't see Levi as a tax collector. Jesus saw Levi as a son of God. Jesus saw, Jesus saw Levi as one of the 12. Historically, Levi was one of the 12 disciples. He was a tax collector. How, how insane is that? Look at Christ's heart towards us, church. Have you seen the look of Christ to you in your moment of weakness as a sinner? Have you felt that grace? Has it rocked you to your core? Have you been on the ground weeping, rejoicing, saying how sweet it is to know Jesus, to experience this grace? There's nothing more powerful in the world than grace. Grace causes someone to leave a life of wealth and wickedness to follow Christ and end up giving their life for that. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, church. Megaphone man shouting that everyone's going to hell on the corner on a college campus uh, uh, has not an ounce of compassion. We don't see Jesus doing that here. And the passage continues, um, uh, and we see, a, we see an accusation hurled at Christ. And uh, before we get there, sorry, I'm skipping ahead. Levi's response to that wasn't just to follow Jesus. Levi's response was to throw a party. We learn more about this in, in uh, Luke's gospel. But Levi throws a party, and he invites tax collectors and sinners. It says in Mark's gospel, there was a many there. Why? Because that's all Levi could hang out with. The, the, the odds were stacked against him. No church folk hung out with Levi because it rendered their house unclean, right? You had to keep your distance and condemn him. You couldn't be associated with him because you too would be ostracized then. It's a silly, it's how, that's how wicked and evil religion is. And, uh, and then what we see, we see not only uh, 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 the response of Levi, we see Jesus reclining at table at the party with the sinners. If you've seen a picture of this uh, online, you can just look it up. What does it look like to, to dine with people 2,000 years ago? Uh, the tables were pretty low to the ground. And, and if there was a lot of people around the table, you would li like literally lie on your side with your head at the table, and you'd kind of be stacked like sardines around the table as you ate together. And uh, we're going to talk about the, what table fellowship meant in that culture. But uh, before we continue, we've got to go to the accusation that's rolled at Jesus in verse 16. It says this, <clears throat> And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And so uh, this is uh, one of the first times in Mark's gospel that we're introduced to Pharisees. And here's what you need to know about Pharisees is that they were uh, like a religious sect of Judaism. They were about 1% of the population. But, but here's the deal. Even though they were a small percentage of the population, they had profound influence in that culture, both in the, the religious world, but also the political world as well. They were kind of like the professional athletes of Judaism. So for instance, if you're a basketball fan, uh, this whole, the, a lot of people around the world play basketball, right? But, but, but there's this small percentage of professional athletes that have complete influence over everyone who plays basketball. Steph Curry, Golden State. I mean, come on now, right? Those guys are legends. Yeah, I see someone, you know, rocking their, their face in the background. LeBron. <laughs> I don't know where all you stand on LeBron, you know, but uh, anyways. So people would look, like if you want to know how to play basketball, right? 
You look to Steph Curry or LeBron and say, man, that's how those guys play. For me as a hockey player, you, you look at Ovi or Baxter, you know, you look at those guys and say, this is what it means to play hockey. And so what the Pharisees were doing, they prided themselves, they devoted themselves to, to, to uh, just memorizing and, and learning and, and studying the Torah, the, 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 the Old Testament law. And then they were so concerned about holiness and pleasing God that they created all these extra biblical laws. To, to create like a, a hedge of protection around transgressing the law. And one of those uh, hedges of protection was uh, the Pharisees, uh, to, to protect themselves from getting unclean and, and sinning, was they literally would not share a meal with a non-Pharisee. They're like, hey, we are the varsity team. We're the A, we're the a squad. You guys are the B or the, the C squad. Uh, and, and, and we don't got any time for that. We we're not going to condescend and humble ourselves and humble you. We pride ourselves. You should be like us. Why can't you perform better? Why can't you play better? You're, you're wasting too much time on other things. You don't devote as much time as you should. And so it wasn't just that they condemned, uh, wouldn't eat with sinners and tax collectors, or whatever. They wouldn't even eat with shepherds or, or common people because they're too busy working and trying to feed their family instead of studying God's law, like them. And they had profound influence. Everyone looked up to them as these are the experts. They're, they just don't know, but they live it as well. Like the way we idolize, uh, you know, uh, LeBron or, or Steph Curry or whatever. And so um, their chief end was holiness, obedience to God's law. And listen, church, listen to this. These dudes, they knew God's law inside and out, and they uh, uh, did not love God, and they actually hated other people. They knew God's word. These were Bible dudes, man. Inside and out. They knew it. They could spit it. They'd say, hey, uh, you know, hey, so-and-so, spit me this verse. And then boom, they would just, in Hebrew, just fire away at it. They knew it. And they, I would even say that they, they, they did not like God and they hated other people. And that, that, should, that should cause us to, to shift in our seats a little bit. It does our devotion, does our pursuit of God uh, help us love him more? Does it, does it stir our affections for him? And does it, are, we, are we growing in love for other people? And as we should know our Bibles. We should know that, but it should cause us to weep with those who weep and have compassion for those. And table fellowship in ancient Near Eastern culture was huge. What Jesus was doing, when Jesus Christ is reclining with wicked men at table, it was an, an invitation into friendship. It was, it was saying, I accept you as you are. Let's be friends. I am identifying with you. You are part of my crew now. That's what, that's what that is. Jesus was a friend of sinners. And what Mark doesn't say here is that Jesus brought a megaphone to the party and was only gonna hang out with those people at the table if they repented of their ways and followed him. It doesn't say that. It says that Jesus was, uh, was friends with them whether they repented or not. It doesn't say that, but that's, what we, that's the picture we have here. It's Jesus is sharing a meal. He's sharing uh, his, his time with them. Maybe listening more than he's speaking. Maybe, hey, tell me your story, Right? And uh, some scholars suggest that uh, uh, since Pharisees would not uh, go and hang out with, with uh, these sinners, that actually some scholars suggest that the Pharisees are in the window, looking into the party, hurling insults from outside the house. And it makes sense because I'm like, one, who would ever invite a Pharisee to a party? And, 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 two, and two, they wouldn't even step foot through that door because they'd be unclean, right? So these jokers are sitting there watching from a distance, and condemning where Jesus is, is getting as close as possible to wicked men and having compassion for them. Church, what about us? Church, what about us? Is our hearts, hey, keep our distance. Keep our distance and condemn and look down from our, our high throne uh, and condemn the sinner. And that's not, that's not what Christ did to us, right, church? Christ, you realize that we are the tax collector, right? You realize that we are the wicked sinner. You realize that we are bankrupt in our morality. We got nothing to offer except for our sin and say, God, can you clean up this mess? It's all his work. It's all his work, his righteousness. And holiness, uh, and, and Jesus responds this way in Mark 2, 17. I love this response. Jesus responds to their criticism this way. And when Jesus heard, heard it, people chirping from the window outside the party, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is, look, 
You're telling me not to hang out with sinners is you're telling me to literally not do the very thing I was sent by my father to do. You're, you're, you're telling me to not, to not fulfill the work I came to do. I'm the great physician. To, I've come to, to, to regenerate, to, 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 uh, uh, to clean up the wicked hearts of men. And I, this, is where I, this is right where I need to be. This is the operating table. This table of fellowship is the surgeon's table. I'm the great physician. And listen, church, holiness, listen, we have to know this. Holiness is a good endeavor. God says, be holy for I am holy. But listen, church, holiness that causes us to condemn sinners is not holiness. Right? It's called that, we call that self-righteousness. And that grieves the heart of God. Where we look at this world, we look at other people, look at our lives and what this gospel teaches us is to say but for the sweet undeserved grace of God in my life that's what it does when we see sin when we see wickedness when we see a tax collector attacks with our hearts break for him because he hasn't tasted and seen that God is good he hasn't tasted and seen the sweet grace that that has changed my life right we don't look at that and say why can't he just be like me why can't he just get his act together I've got my act together that's just, that is, that is wicked pride in our hearts. And, and we have hard hearts, we have callous hearts, and our hearts have grown cold to people who can't get their act together because we've, we've come to, 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 to meet Christ all by his grace, right? And now, since we've gotten our act together and we're pretty good and we, you know, we, we, we eat a balanced diet and we don't have any too, uh, too bad addictions you know, or all that stuff, we think we're better than everyone else and all we have to offer is condemnation when in fact we forget that all of our life is grace so that no one can boast. The holiness Christ calls us to is like a surgeon who furiously washes and scrubs his hands. He puts on the scrubs, the gloves, the face shield, so that he can go and heal the sick and disease without causing them more harm. Our holiness causes us to run full sprints towards the sinner, not farther away. And uh, before we move on, God's disposition towards us is he wants to sit down and share a meal with you. What we learn in this text, and I got to move on because we're running out of time. Got a lot more ground to cover. But what we learn in this text is that Jesus is not up in the sky with his arms crossed, looking down with displeasure because you can't get your act together, because you can't perform better. Jesus is so much closer than you can ever imagine. And as we're going to share a meal here at the end, he's got a cup of wine, wine of his, his blood shed for you, and his bread, his body broken for you is an invite to, to come in and taste of his sweet Christ and his love and his friendship in your life. That's the call of the gospel. Jesus is the physician who can heal the hearts of man, and we're going to talk about that later um, when we conclude. The, se- the second scene is, uh, starts in Mark 2, 18, and we see that not only does Jesus feast with sinners, but he feasts with his disciples. I think in the church, you know, maybe we could read this and be like, oh, well, Jesus dines with sinners, so then he can grab them by the hook and he reels them in and says, okay, now that you follow me, you have to be miserable. Now we see Jesus is accused of feasting with his disciples that God delights in and gives good gifts to his children. And here's the setting. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to Jesus, uh, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Um, the only officially sanctioned fast in the Old Testament was on the Day of Atonement. So there's one day out of 365 days. It's the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, 29. But see, the Pharisees here, because they're like the varsity squad, they're like, hey, you know, we're going we're gonna to up the ante. We're going to fast on Monday, and we're going to fast on Thursday. And, uh, and John's disciples probably fasted in preparation of the coming of Messiah. But what we see here is that legalism uh, you, you striving to obey the law rather than delight in loving God, you striving to obey the law uh, creates a, com- a constant comparison with other people. Constantly, constantly, hey, hey, Jesus, man, like, look at the varsity team, you know? It's like, it's like hey, look at the Golden State Warriors, Jesus. This is what they do. Why do, why do you not do that? Why do you not play like they play? And uh, yeah, religion, it just creates a, a, an obsession with performance, competition, comparing yourself with others. You perform well, therefore you are accepted. And the response that Jesus has is this. This is the response. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And when they fast in that day, uh, and then they will fast in that day. And no one sews a piece of unstruck cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new one from the old, and a worse, a worse tear is made. 
And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will be burst, will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskin. And so the way Jesus responds is he, he get, again gives a couple of illustrations. And the first one he gives is, is this picture of a, of a wedding or even a bachelor party, right? And uh, what he's saying is, look, I have a, this is kind of the first allusion to his death. And what he's saying is, listen, I have a, a small window that I get to spend face to face with my disciples before I die. And we're going to feast. I'm going to share a meal with them. And there's going to come a time when they will fast, when, when I'm going to, uh, to be separated from them. That, that's the time. But right now, before that event, we're going we're gonna to feast together. We're going to dine together. We're going to cultivate this friendship. They're going to know what it means to be my disciple. And, and the picture gives us is kind of like uh, a bachelor party. If you've been uh, to bachelor parties before, you know that there's some really good ones that you've been to, and there's some awful bachelor parties that you've been to before, right? And so imagine going to a bachelor party, and, and you get there uh, Friday night. You're, you're at a cabin in the woods, you know, or whatever, for, for the bachelor party uh, from, from Friday until Sunday afternoon when, you're, when your best friend gets uh, married. And the best man rallies the troops on Friday and says, all right, guys, here's the deal. In order for us to prove our devotion and our love for our friend Timmy, who's getting married in a couple of days. Uh, listen, I didn't get any food. I didn't get any drinks this weekend. So what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to hurt. We're going to be miserable to, to appease him and show him how awesome well, we know, how awesome he is. And then in addition to that, on Saturday, all of us guys, man, we're going to get in like a, a, this, this circle of like encouragement and, and just share nice things about Timmy and like what he means to us. Dude, I would be running for the hills, right? I would be, uh, Timmy would be in my arms. We're like, we're gonna go find a deer in the woods. They're like, you know, this is not how you, this is not how you celebrate. This is not how you celebrate. This is not how you, uh, you know, whatever. That, and Jesus is saying, uh, 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 oftentimes we, uh, what religion teaches us is, is it's all about duty, right? Obligation miserable obedience to appease someone who is forever disappointed with you. And the heart of Christ, what we see here, church, is Jesus saying, I'm, I'm eating with my disciples. I'm going to share a meal with them. That's not my heart towards humanity. That's my heart towards people. And the second way Jesus responds is, uh, uh, he talks about clothing. He talks about wineskins. And Jesus, what Jesus is saying here is you can't put, uh, uh, you know, if you've got a hole in your jeans or on your shirt, you can't put a new piece of cloth on that. The second you wash it and dry it, that's going gonna, gonna to shrink and it's going to tear away what is old. The same with wineskins. If you have new wine and old wineskins, it's going to ferment. It, the thing's just going to explode. And what Jesus is saying here is I've come, this is what a uh, uh, biblical scholar, uh, Daniel Aiken, says about this, this illustration. He says, this parable and the one about the patch both illustrate the radical new era in Jesus' coming. Jesus is the new cloth and the new wine. He is not an attachment. He is not an addition or an appendage to the status quo. He cannot be integrated into or contained by pre-existing structures. Even Judaism, the Torah, and the synagogue. Grace and legalism are antithetical to each other. Jesus Christ and, and the journey he calls us on is antithetical to the way the Pharisees were living. Legalism, grace, it's like oil and water. You cannot, you cannot have both. It's either all grace, all the work of God, or it's all up to you and your performance. That's your choice. And Jesus is saying it, it cannot and it dare not be both because what religion produces is, 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 is duty, obligation, misery, and, and eventually death. Rob sucks the life and joy out of you. And Jesus came to say, I give you life, life abundantly, joy, grace everlasting. As vast as an ocean is my grace for you, my love for you. Jesus saying is antithetical to my message. And so I was at the beach uh, a couple weeks ago, and I think I had this picture of grace and legalism in my head. And uh, we were in the Outer Banks, and, and if you have been to the beach with kids before, you know it takes about two hours to get to the beach, right? You gotta, you gotta get the sunscreen out, you gotta get their, 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 their swimsuits on, you gotta lug all of their toys, the canopy, all that stuff, and you finally get to the beach, and often you're carrying your kids with you as you're carrying like an umbrella and beach chairs and all this stuff, and you're kicking their, you know, all their toys down the, the beach. Uh, and so there came a day where I was like, you know what, I'm gonna build my daughter a, a castle. And my dad got her this cute little chair, and I'm going to put the chair on top of it, and I'm going to declare her like Queen Kelsey, right? It's going to be awesome. So I get the shovel out, and I'm like, Kelsey, let's build. And so I'm on my hands and, and my knees, I'm trying to, you know, like, uh, I'm trying to impress my two-year-old daughter who's never going to remember this size pictures. And I'm digging this big trench, you know, whatever, and throwing the sand up there. And you want to know Kelsey's contribution to that? She has her bucket of shells, and she's throwing stuff in the trench that I'm, <laughs> that I'm digging. I'm like, Kelsey, that's not how this works, you know? And... Uh, 
And then the, the castle gets built, and I finally grab her chair, and I put it there. And I'm like, come on, Kelsey, get up there. And uh, you want to know, uh, Kelsey's struggling and striving to get in that chair. She couldn't get up there. The more and more she strived to, to sit in that chair, the more and more she struggled, the farther and farther she got away, and the more and more sand was, was filling those trenches. It wasn't until her father picked her up and, and put her in that chair, right? And then, and then her father declares upon her and says, you now have a new identity, Kelsey. You have a new status, and your name is Queen Kelsey, is what I said to her, right? Enjoy it. Look at this view, Kelsey, that I put you in front of, this ocean, right? And, and here's what's funny is Kelsey, uh, and I probably shouldn't know this is bad parenting, but I, have, I put Kelsey on the chair, and I say, you're Queen Kelsey. Now, Kelsey, look out and say, my beach, right? And then, and then she called the ocean the whole week her pool. So she goes, you know, my beach, my pool, you know? And it was adorable, but I'm creating a little narcissist. I shouldn't do that. Uh, but it was cute, right? But church, how silly of us in our Christian walk right? When we're standing in front of the vast ocean of God's grace, the sun glistening off of, that, of those waters, that's our view forever, right? And we have a new identity, those who are in Christ, covered by his blood. It was through our father's blood, sweat, and tears, the, 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 the grief it took him to send his son to die in our place. And then we have the audacity to sit in the new status as a son and daughter of the king and boast that it was our work. Shame on us, church. It's all grace. It's all grace. And what religion teaches us, what, what religion and self-righteousness is, is it's theft. It's robbing our father of his work, taking credit for, for, for things we can't take credit for, church. And when we understand grace, and we understand that it's all grace, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. And, the, and listen, if we believe that it is, it is 0.001% of our own doing, we will continue to live our lives standing outside of the house, looking from a distance at sinners and condemning them. But when we understand that it's not our own doing, that it's all the grace of God, it is a gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one can boast. We boast in our Savior and our God, and his work on our behalf, and that creates us, uh, as a people, it creates us clapping, it creates us singing, there's joy now, there's life, when you know you can finally take a breath of fresh air, when you don't have to climb up this mountain of sand of self-righteousness, and strive your whole life to appease God who just wants to pick you up himself and place you in that status. Church, look at the heart of God towards us. This is all gospel, this is all Christ. And, and in our sin, we were so prone to, to, to make it all about us. And the Christian message, what we learn in the Gospels is that the Christian message is not about us proving our devotion to God, but about him proving his love and devotion to us through his, the person and work of Jesus. That's what we see. And the third scene we see here is uh, that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and that Jesus actually, quote unquote, works on the Sabbath. So here's the setting, verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Fourth commandment, uh, out of the 10 commandments that God declares, you know, work six days, take, God says, God commands us, take a day off. Hey, hey, take a breath, take a breather, rest, right? And so what Jesus is doing on the Sabbath, him and his disciples, they're, they're traveling and they're literally just picking berries. They're, they're, there's no 7-Eleven to stop by to get, you know, if, you know like uh, some beef jerky or some trail mix. They're grabbing, they're grabbing grain, they're grabbing blueberries. They're just, they're harvesting, if you will. And, and then lo and behold, this is, uh, lo and behold, what we see is in, in Mark 20, verse 24, we see uh, this, this happen. The accusation comes. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Why are your disciples doing this on the Sabbath? So, so picture this. Jesus and his disciples are, are just, they're just traveling. They're just walking. And they're just, just picking, picking berries off the side of the road, essentially. And all of a sudden, the lights and sirens come on. The Sabbath police roll up right? And they say, Jesus and the disciples, please step away from the grain. You know, drop the grain. They're following them. Watch that. I mean, this is the insanity of religion, right? And here's, here's, here, here's the, the laws they broke. The Pharisees created new commandments on top of God's commandments. Nowhere in God's word does it say you can't walk 
or, or harvest grain on the Sabbath uh, to that extent. And so this is what this is what this is what happened. So literally, these Pharisees they created uh, this law: you can't walk more than one thousand nine hundred and ninety-nine steps on the Sabbath. So the picture I have. And so Jesus, Jesus Christ are walking. Picture how does these Pharisees are they're 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 they're, they're, like, right, they're rallying together and they're like, all right, hey, you get Jesus. I'm gonna count Levi steps, you count Peter steps. All right, here we go. They're like Fitbits, right? All right, one, two, three, four, five. They're running from a six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. How did that, you know? And so they condemn them with that. That's that's the insanity of religion. And and, and, and then they accuse them of harvesting grain. They got they got a handful of, of grain. Got a, a, dude, I got a couple blueberries. You're gonna pull me over for that? I was going two miles an hour over the speed limit. You're gonna you're gonna arrest me for that? The, the, the Sabbath police. And sadly, this is our view of God. Man, he's counting the minutes you spend in your quiet time. He's counting your church attendance. And he's displeased. Right? We have a Pharisaic view of God. Often our view of God is these Pharisees and not Jesus. And this is how Jesus responds. Verse 25. And he said to them, uh, have you never read, and I love it, Jesus steps on, on, on the court that they prided themselves in knowing their scriptures. So he says, all right, you want to ball with me? Let's, let's ball. He steps on the court and, uh, and drains a three from half court here. So, and he said to them, have you never read what David did? You guys know your word. You know your scriptures. When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how that he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the high priest to eat, and also gave to those who were with them. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. He points it back to Scripture. There was this time where David and his men were, were in need and hungry, so that they went into the house of God, ate the bread of the presence, the consecrated bread of the temple. While it was not normal or lawful for David and his men to eat the bread of the presence, listen, it was even more the case that God did not want them to starve. God was primarily concerned with caring for his servant David the anointed king of Israel. And scripture nowhere condemns their actions. What Jesus is pointing them to is he's saying, look at the heart of God towards David, his servant. God's not, but not up in heaven saying, David and your men, you need to starve and suffer. I'd rather you starve and be miserable and suffer than eat bread that's readily available for you. And then second, Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Essentially what Jesus is saying here is, listen, church, the Sabbath is a sweet gift from God. It's supposed to be a blessing to us, church, not a burden. It's supposed to be a day of rest, a day of, of, of rebuilding what is, what is broken, restoring what is out of place. It's a day where we can rest in God's worth. And because Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and because our righteousness is not us working and striving, as a Christian we, as a Christian and not a Pharisee, we actually can take a break. We can actually rest from striving in our morality because we know that it is finished. On the cross, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Just as, as creation, God looked upon, after six days of work, looked upon uh, uh, what took place there, uh, I, 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 when, when time and, and, and matter came onto the scene and said, man, I am happy in that work. It is finished. In the same way, uh, through the person and work of Jesus on the cross, through his death and resurrection, we now have uh, the awesome hope of saying, when it comes to my standing with God, my place with God, my, my seat with God, if you will, it is finished. Therefore, I can take a day off and know that God is not displeased and looking down with displeasure at me for resting. And a lot of times, uh, we have this quiet time model of Christianity where you're not a Christian unless you have quiet times. Yes, I'm all about spending time with the Lord. But here's the deal. I had a, I had a moment about five years ago, and I was really, like about five years ago, um, before I had a couple kids, <laughs> I was really big into, like, uh, into discipline, you know, like self-discipline, uh, self-help, just pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and a lot of stuff. And so I was like, you know, what? I need to pray more. I'm going to pray seven minutes a day. It's called heads up, seven up. And, I, and I'm going to set it to, I literally, I literally, I, you all are laughing. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is how, you know, this is how legalistic and fair sake I am. Uh, seven minutes, I would pray. And there came a day where I was about to walk out the door and I forgot to pray. So, oh, dang it. So this is my, and I think God is happy with it. I go, dang it, I got to pray. All right, set the timer. All right, here we go. I'm kneeling at the table. All right. Seven minutes. All right, Lord, man, I don't even, I don't even know what to pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray the Stanley Cup. Uh, Caps won a Stanley Cup one day. I uh, pray that. Uh, pray for world peace. 
uh, in my heart, I was actually, uh, I checked the time again. The time is there's still like six minutes left. And I was like, oh my gosh, right? That was my, that was my heart in that time. I'm just being fully honest, right? And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And out of nowhere, and I've been accused by some people that I, I tend to uh, uh, not, not make stuff up, but they wonder if I make stuff up here. I take this very seriously and let the record show I, I'm not fabricating or making stuff up when, when I, I take this seriously. So I'm not making up stuff up here. Uh, just disclaimer, because sometimes where it gets back to me, is like, hey, was that true? I was like, what? You think I'm telling, what do you think I'm like, you know, making all this up? <laughs> I, <laughs> I heard, I'm, I'm sitting there praying and I, uh, I heard unsolicited uh, the voice of God. As some of you know, that, that whisper, that's not you, a thought enters your head. It's someone speaking to you. And the, the, the word I got was, Nick, do you love me? And that terrified me. One, because I was like, whoa, what was that? What was that? I was busy praying here, and, and there, I guess there's someone else listening, right? <laughs> Crazy how that works, right, church? And then, and then what terrified me, church, please listen to this. This is true. I realized in that moment, I did not love God. I couldn't answer yes to the question. And that terrified me. And all of a sudden, God, what God was doing is he was softening my heart. And he's saying, Nick, I'm not after your quiet times. I'm not after your seven minutes of legalistic uh, a prayer that you just have to endure. I want you to, to delight in me as I delight in you. That, that you don't win my favor by praying for seven minutes a day. And sadly, I know there's a lot of us in here, and maybe, maybe there's some moms in here, multiple kids, and, and your devotional life has taken a back shelf. And, and what you believe now is that God is keeping his distance from you. He's got his arms crossed, and he's saying, really? Really? You can't wake up a little bit earlier before the kids wake up and spend some time in prayer? Really? Hey, that's all you're going to read today? You're only going to pray that much? For people, really? Church, do we really think that's God's posture towards you? He sees your, some of us here are, we got our nose above water, right? And God's saying, I'm here. Your quiet time should be a blessing, right? I don't care if you spend 30 seconds or an hour, you're still, your identity is a son or a daughter of, 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 of me, of God. You don't have to earn it anymore. Come and rest in that. And oftentimes we think God is, count, just like the Pharisees, counting the steps of the disciples. We think God's up, up uh, in heaven displeased with the fact that we can't spend more time with him. He, our church, he doesn't want our quiet times. He wants our hearts. He wants our love, our affection. He wants to dine with us. What a quiet time is, is, is us pulling up a chair uh, to Jesus who's got a table already presented with us. Everything we need there. And he's already sitting. And we just get to sit down, pull up a chair. And oftentimes I'll start my quiet time saying, Lord, I'm not, I'm not here to power through this. I'm here, I'm here to, to, to connect with you. Would you please speak? Would you please speak? I want to hear from you today. Instead of just often, I'll just rush into it and kind of what we have a tendency to do is kind of get back, God off my back, right? And then I'll go about my day. When in fact, that's, uh, that's not the heart of God. And so uh, the passage uh, continues and uh, I'll conclude with this. Mark 3, verses one through six. And the title of my talk is Jesus brings life, religion brings death. And what self-righteousness brings is calloused, hardened hearts, cold hearts that have grown cold to God because what religion is is a self-focus on our us and our holiness. And then two, it calluses us and makes us cold to others. And eventually that, what that leads to is what we see here with the Pharisees that led them to have hatred and, and usher in the death of Christ. Uh, Jesus brings life, religion brings death. Here we go, verse one. And he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent and listened. And Jesus looked around at them with anger. That his anger turned into grief. And he said, he was grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched, out, stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him, how to destroy him. Uh, the picture we have here is Jesus is at a synagogue on the Sabbath, and there's a man there, listen, with the heart that had been hardened, with a with hand that had been hardened. 
uh, in, an, in an agrarian society where you need your hands, this man uh, would have been ostracized. We don't know how long he, he wrestled with this, but he would have, his man card would have been challenged from, from the time he could work to, to the time he's present in the synagogue. Imagine, imagine just, just for once, putting ourselves in his shoes, having that physical deformity. You can't hide that. It's something you, you, you're constantly reminded of on a daily basis. And Jesus is, 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 is teaching in the synagogue, and he knows it's the Sabbath. And he knows that these Pharisees have created a false law of do not heal, do not work on the Sabbath. Not in my synagogue, Jesus. Not on this day, Jesus. This man's going to have to wait to be healed. And Jesus, and Jesus that, that causes him to be angry because these people, the reason it caused him, because they're representing God. Everyone looks up to them as the, this is what it means to follow God. The Pharisees had profound influence. And, and Jesus in front of everyone tells the man, listen, stretch out that hardened, calloused, withered hand. Bring it to the great physician and let me restore it. And Jesus heals it on the Sabbath. And then the Pharisees are so angry at that. They're starting to lose their influence. More people are looking up to uh, uh, Jesus and his crew than they are them. They're starting to, to wear, uh, uh, you know, going from Cavaliers fans to Golden State Warriors fans. They're switching their jersey up, if you will. And, and they're getting scared so much so that the Pharisees, the Herodians, kind of sold their soul uh, uh, to the Greco-Roman world. They're, they're kind of on the left where the Pharisees were on the way right. And the Pharisees uh, hated Jesus so much that they're willing to partner with their enemies to plot to kill Jesus. That's where, that's where religion gets you right? And something that sticks out to me, and I will conclude with this, I'm over time, is uh, I was reading through my quiet time, uh, uh, my quiet time, so I was reading through my, my, my word, my time with the Lord, and uh, earlier this week, and a verse stuck out to me, it's in, it in Hebrews, uh, it's, it's chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, and it says this, do not harden your hearts. God is speaking, and when you hear the voice of God, today, do not harden your hearts. What we encounter here is Christ was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And you and I uh, are going to leave here changed. This is the truth of that passage, the truth of that, that verse. Is that it's not, the danger isn't that we leave here unchanged. The danger is that we're going to leave here in one of two ways, church. The danger is we're going to leave here in one of two ways. We're going to leave here uh, uh, more calloused, uh, more hardened. Today, we've, we've dove into God's word. We've seen the heart of God, and we can respond with the softening of our hearts, our, our affections being, being uh, uh, stirred for Jesus, for love for God and compassion towards others. We can leave that way, or we can leave here and actually be hardened in our hearts at the voice of God speaking today. More calluses, more uh, uh, layers of skin that, 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 that causes us not to feel any more. And uh, yesterday during the Tough Mudder, I was running the race, and there's this monkey bar thing at, uh, at the end, and the guy in front of me put on gloves before he went to the, the monkey bars. And uh, me, being self-righteous and proud in my head, I didn't say it, so I was like, dude, come on. You're putting gloves on? Dude, just, you know, you don't need gloves. Come on, why are you wearing gloves, dude? Man up. You know, that's what I'm thinking, right? Because I'm just proud. I'm comparing. I'm, 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 that's my, my tendency, right? And then uh, I soon found out why he was wearing gloves. I, I, I do the thing, you know, whatever. Like, I'm like, oh, I'm Ninja Warrior, you know? And uh, I finish, and my hand is on fire, and it's bleeding. And I look down, and the callus I had there is just scoop, just shredded, just gone, right? Completely gone. Bloody. And then I go, oh, that's why he put gloves on. For that reason, right? And see, uh, uh, in my pride, uh, my, my, you know, I, I sure I did like five pull-ups to prepare for the race, and I grew some calluses, and I thought they were strong enough, right? Uh, but I, what I needed to take off those calluses so I could feel again where those calluses once were is I needed something else to, 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 to rip that off, to rip off those calluses. And listen, church, every time we sit at a distance and condemn a sinner, who stands maybe different politically than we do, stands on a different religious view than we do, or, or whatever it is, right? They're, maybe they, they have a different view of parenting or, or, or a different view of whether you should eat meat or not, you know, whatever you guys are uh, proud about. Uh, we, our hearts get an extra callous on them. They get, they get hardened. Every time we keep our distance, every time, we just, every time we have a quiet time and we think that's pleasing God just because we're doing it, we don't want to do it because we want to delight with God. We just want to do it to get it done. That's, that's another layer of our hearts growing cold. And what we need, like the, the man with the withered hand, listen, church, this morning, I will conclude with this, is today is to offer our hardened hearts to the great physician, 
Jesus said, uh, uh, I came uh, uh, for the sick, for the sinner, not the righteous. And the thing with religion is religion believes in self-management. Religion believes in, uh, I can handle this. And as long as we believe, I can handle the hardness of my heart. I just need more rules. I just need to perform better. As long as you believe that, you're never going to go to the doctor, right? Uh, you can't WebMD your heart, right? It's not until uh, you have a serious injury where you know it's completely outside of your control, uh, where you are in constant pain, that that drives you to, to throw yourself uh, uh, to, to the physician, to the doctor. In the same way, church, uh, uh, my hope this morning is that we'd be honest with ourselves. Be honest with ourselves. And we invite the Holy Spirit to come now in this time and say, Holy Spirit, would you reveal to me where my heart has grown hardened? Holy Spirit, would you come and would you rip off the calluses that I have formed due to my condemnation and self-righteousness? That's my hope. That we, uh, with, our, with God doing the work that only he can do, softening our hearts so that we can see, maybe for the first time today, that God's uh, posture towards you is, is, is not of displeasure, but it's of love and compassion. And he's inviting you into a relationship, into a journey with him. And so uh, I'm going to invite the band to come up here. I'm going to pray and uh, give you guys some time to just uh, reflect on you know, where your heart's at this morning. And would you maybe, for the first time in your life, take that risky step of faith and say, uh, and to invite Jesus. Jesus, would you come into my heart? My heart has grown cold, it has grown callous, and, and I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Would you come and do what only you can do and give me a new heart, a softened heart, to see you for who you truly are, and to see humanity as you see them. So with that said, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, uh, we thank you, uh, God, for your, your grace towards us. Uh, we boast in you, we boast in, in your work, uh, Jesus. And we come before you grateful, saying thank you. Uh, it is finished. We can rest in the finished work, Lord, uh, that you have done on our behalf. Holy Spirit, would you come now in power upon this congregation? Would you speak to them? Jesus, I ask as a great physician that you start tending to the hearts of those in this room peeling away layer after layer of callous hearts that have grown cold. Would you speak life into those hearts? Would you speak joy into those hearts? Would you speak grace into those lives? Would you speak, Father? Apart from you, we cannot do that. That's why we invite you to come do that. So Jesus, we thank you that that's the work you came to do to seek and save the lost. Father, we thank you for that, that when you saw us sitting in our sin, at our, at our tax booth, if you will, your posture towards us was compassion, and you called us from a, a life of sin into a life of joy and grace in knowing and following you, Jesus. May we uh, today leave here rejoicing and clapping and singing of the new status we have, the new view we have of your ocean of grace for all of eternity, would we reflect on that tonight? And would that cause us to rejoice? Would that cause us, maybe for the first time in a long time, to actually have our emotions stirred for you? And out of that overflow of joy and grace, would we extend that to people who have not yet tasted of your sweet grace? So we pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Thank you, Lord.